as to the kind of truth one finds in books. It is a truth that enables us sometimes to discern what things are not, without ever enabling us to discover what they are. Anatoly France, Revolt of the Angels. This is Beyond the Veil, and I am your humble host. In our last episode, we touched on the topic of existentialism. This episode will expand upon existentialism in the modern era. Instead of being narrowed in scope to the duality of the black consciousness, it will be extended to encompass an entire generation of nihilists and the absurdists who came after us. We will expand upon the consequences of stripping a whole generation of agency and the existential problems that follow. Furthermore, we will expand upon the post-colonial psychopathology of predatory venture capitalists. However, now the colonization in question is the colonization of the entirety of the American lower classes instead of a singular analysis of my tribe. I hope you enjoyed this journey down the philosophical rabbit hole, and I thank you for accompanying me. This episode is titled Addiction, Social Media, and Surveillance Capitalism. Let us begin. Addiction is a powerful form of control. Chaos Magic states that the greatest threat to the individual psyche is the demon Choronzone. Choronzone is the manifestation of obsession. When one obsesses over something conflated with their great work, then they have succumbed to Choronzone. Let us strip the allegory and metaphor of Goethean philosophy and examine Choronzone from a less poetic and more mundane perspective. I for that the purest and most pervasive form of obsession is addiction. Addiction can take many forms. I have seen family members succumb to drug addiction. I have seen individuals succumb to love addiction. The most pervasive and destructive addiction of our current generation, I would argue, is the addiction to belonging. In the modern age, the more connected we have become, the more isolated from each other we have grown. I have witnessed the nihilism that permeates my generation grow to suffocate creative thought and artistic expression completely. When one seeks the paintbrush of Picasso, they instead find the mini Tech 9 of Dylan Klebold. When one yearns for the music of Hector Berlioz, they instead find the chorus of a thousand beleaguered Black Lives Matter protesters marching against an uncaring draconian machine. All of this stems from, I argue, an alienation championed by corporate interests. I do not believe that we came to this point on account of any deliberate agenda, at least not an existential agenda beyond the immediate gratification of profit. I argue this is the natural progression of anachronism struggling to remain relevant in the modern era. Hobbesian dogmatism raised us to place profit before people, where we should instead shout community before everything. Maybe our values don't directly state profit before people, but the culmination of Hobbesian dogma and Roman Caesarism led us inevitably towards the ever-present specter of what computer scientists and data engineers call surveillance capitalism. 
Humanity has, tragically and historically, been the most profitable form of capital in hierarchical societies. During the days of American chattel slavery, my people were genuine human capital. The wealth of the aristocratic South judged itself not by the glittering expanse of their gold coffers, but instead by the number of slave houses that sprawled haphazardly around their antebellum palaces. The southern aristocrats gladly boasted about their respective negroes the same way an equestrian would brag about her prized show horse. When the American North liberated my tribe from despotism, they liberated the aristocrats of their Hobbesian wealth as well. Unfortunately, American bourgeois had no plans on surrendering the lucrative system of human capital. Instead, they sought to evolve the system in a way that would survive the ever-mutating cycle of public civics. With the abolition of slavery, human capital had to take on a more abstract form. Prison labor is presently under assault from guerrilla politicians. This equally draconian profit machine of higher education has become less feasible as the individual wealth required to pursue college education becomes increasingly negligible. What takes its place in the 21st century is a seemingly omnipotent advertisement campaign. The lower 40% of American society was already negatively impacted with an average household debt of approximately $14,800. When the pandemic struck, it exacerbated an already nightmarish recession. Capitalist society requires constant consumption to survive. Without individual capital to spend, consumption by extension declines. This lack of spending would prove detrimental to the American business model if left unchecked, as they can only rely on foreign business ventures to a certain extent. Thus, venture capitalists have, have to find a way to convince the American population to spend enough money to cycle back into the economic machine, which raises the question, how do you keep spent people spending money they don't have? The answer, it turns out, is quite simple. Continuously feed them images of things that they don't need but rapidly crave. With Americans isolated from political polarization and quarantine, the environment for impulse buying habits is in a perfect state of incubation. However, the environment by itself is not enough to convince the ordinary populace to spend. To feed the rabid need to consume, you must stoke the fires of addiction. To ensure addiction has the environment required to thrive, you must simulate oppressive loneliness. Thus, we have seen the rise of the social media machine spreading its dragon's wings with its abyssal maw opened agape. Through an unholy amalgamation of Hobbesian political and game theory, this monstrosity finds a way to scorch away all forms of connection. In a world where humans interact on a near-constant basis, yet still feel the oppressive loneliness of isolation, humanity becomes ripe for economic vampirism. The wealthy elite creates a monster. 
This monster is Zone. This monster is social media. In my last episode, I covered the existential effects of generational trauma upon the black African strata of American society. This episode will now cover the unfortunate collective trauma our communities faced during the civil unrest and viral epidemic of what I will refer to as the crisis of 2020, and how big business capitalized on such trauma to increase their dividends. First, I would like to outline a couple of general scenarios, elucidating the prevalent nihilistic existentialism which ransacked my generation, millennials, and the generations after mine. Bear with me as the information will be dry for a brief moment, but it will serve the purpose of outlining the coming topics a little more thoroughly. The current generations are experiencing a loss of agency. Agency reaffirms a human sentience and individuality in an uncaring cosmos. However, What happens when individuals recognize their agency stripped from them in a very visceral fashion? Without the ability to self-govern our actions and success, our worldview grows increasingly bleak. During the previous generations, it was commonplace for a citizen to start a family at the age of 18 and pursue an independent life grasping for the suburban heterotopia promised by Disney and Uncle Sam. Nowadays, we find ourselves struggling to survive at 30. We find ourselves living communally with no hope of starting a healthy family and living entirely independently within the foreseeable future. Yes, there are the select few who achieve that promised suburban lifestyle, but they are few and far between. The majority of us struggle to survive, and every day we find ourselves slipping further behind the social marathon. Millennials, and those after millennials, face an increasingly precarious situation. During our youth, parents indoctrinated us to believe that the secrets to happiness were to work hard in school, attend college, and start a family. Indeed, these seemed to be the only aspirations that a child expected to exemplify as they grew older. As we grew older, we realized how infeasible those goals and aspirations were. The National Center for Education Statistics reports the average yearly cost for a four-year university in 1976 was $2,275. In 2021, the average annual tuition is $25,362. That is a 1,014% increase in price. We compare this to the average salary of the American citizen in 1976 of 12690 to 49747 in 2020 as reported by the U.S. Census Bureau. This is only a 292% increase. Furthermore, with the nightmarish stories of student loans in the modern era, Most students will find themselves paying substantially more than the advertised tuition when they pay off all of their student loans. Turning our 
pessimistic view away from the cost of higher education, we can also analyze the gradual destruction of the professional labor industry since, since early 1900s America. Granted, we don't have the kind of martial crackdowns witnessed during such events such as the Battle of Blair Mountain, but the compounding destruction inflicted upon the professional labor industry puts the modern-day labor industry relegated to only being able to hire a handful of individuals despite the deficit of needed artisans. Finally, we analyze the current state of affairs with the standard cost of living. The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities reports that the average cost of rent and utilities has risen by 13% from 2001 to 2018, while the average income has only increased by 0.5%. Most millennials struggle to uphold abject living conditions to survive. At the same time, the previous generation harasses us for not budgeting correctly getting the correct jobs, sacrificing livelihood, or any number of excuses. We see these struggles manifest in yet another complaint that the older generation has with us, the younger generation. A sharp increase in antinatalism. Antinatalism is the refusal to have children. Most millennials and the generations that came after us have several reasons to refuse to have kids. Some have cited the realization of how prevalent generational trauma is and the fear of passing our unresolved trauma onto an innocent life. Others have mentioned the inability to afford a child with the current economic state of affairs. For a more concrete representation of antinatalism, Reference the data concerning the average number of children per family, 2.5. Statistica reports that the average number of children per family in 2019 is 1.93. The U.S. fertility rate required to support the population is 2.1 children per family. By converting this data into something a little more human, we can see just a few reasons why mine and the sequential generation struggle from abject feelings of despair, nihilism, and a generally fatalist outlook. From my personal experience, most suicides happen once the victim feels trapped in a cyclical process of being unable to better their situation or escape their current pain. When one doesn't have the energy or willpower to carry through with the suicide, they turn towards other means. These means generally manifest as addiction. What kind of addiction varies? Addiction and the brain anti-reward system presented in the annual review of psychology by George F. Kube and Michael Lee Mole describes addiction as any compulsive behavior which cycles between the need to alleviate anxiety and dysphoria by chemical use or neurotic actions such as kleptomania, nymphomania, or obsessive-compulsive disorder. Humans are social animals, and the human mind relies on social interactions to release the required dopamine levels to remain stable and functional in our daily activities. 
Historically, the family structure has been the most stable form of human interaction for a person. With the increasing inability to start our own families and the expectation to move out and live independently, we find ourselves stuck in isolation, along with our demons and the uncaring and suffocating expectations of an increasingly unrealizable American dream continuously crashing down upon us. Strangely enough, only the bottom 90% seem to suffer from this fatal scenario. The wealthy elite has been growing increasingly more wealthy, as if our suffering, which borders on the antipathetic, directly feeds their gluttonous bloating. Forbes reports a record increase in poverty from 9.3% in June to 11.7% in November, while simultaneously reporting a 38% increase in the combined wealth of, a million of America's billionaires, or $1.1 trillion altogether. Most relevant modern billionaires come from the tech industry, and big data is the most lucrative stratum of said industry. Big data has been the emergent giant in the corporate theater for quite some time now. It has seen exponential growth from $122 billion to $273.2 billion since 2015 and shows no sign of slowing down. The most efficient method of framing big data's Herculean increase explains what exactly big data is. Big data is the reification of mathematical models manifested in business revenue. For big data to remain ahead, it has to think ahead. The most critical problem facing the guarantee of wealth accrual isn't how you make money now. It's how does one continue to make money in the foreseeable future. Game theorists and business analysts can only perform so fast. So the careers themselves require such intense education and on-site training to be rendered almost entirely esoteric and cabalistic by nature. A cabalistic organization can maintain itself but will never have the organic capacity to keep in lockstep with the ever-mutating supply and demand system. To rectify such a problem, companies turn towards the emergent fields of machine learning and data science. Machine learning is the mathematical principle related to the codification of probabilistic models into computer algorithms that can self-correct and maintain relevancy much more efficiently at a more fluid pace than a team of human mathematicians could hope to do solo. With processing power having increased a quadrillion fold, yes, a quadrillion, and the human brain only grow, growing by a negligible amount since the invention of the computer, it would make sense from a bureaucratic perspective to trust the future of economic growth to such complex and godlike computational systems. These systems are admittedly impressive. Entire complexes exist dedicated solely to housing and maintaining massive mainframes, which are constantly running programs of labyrinthian complexity. Artificial underwater chambers exist to counter the immense thermal energy that emanates from such hardware as conventional cooling methods alone prove insufficient to keep pace with both the hubris of capitalist greed and the sheer processing power 
of the systems required to fuel said hubris. These chambers dwarf the antebellum computer rooms of early computer science. In contrast, each minuscule motherboard that takes up little volume within the server by itself simultaneously dwarfs the processing power of those aforementioned computational chambers. A simple conundrum restricts these admittedly impressive machines. What exactly should they analyze? No matter how unique artificial intelligence matrices may appear to the layman, without a clear directive they are nothing more than colossal intelligentsia with the initiative of a newborn infant. Machine learning algorithms learn only within the parameters of what they are designed to learn. They are incapable of picking up a book, questioning the quandaries of physics, or understanding the metaphysical importance of artistic creativity. They only execute. They are still servile in the framework that they are entirely reliant on us as humans to tell them what to accomplish and within what constraints. Big Dead has shown unequivocally that their primary concern is simply increasing profits. Consequently, we see a clear framework of personal and vampiric human greed masquerading as science. Whether the profit is at the expense of the common masses or not is of no concern to the business model. In fact, the more the model damages the psychology of the normal person, the more profitable it becomes. To paint a more detailed picture, I will use a passage from Kathy O'Neill's highly recommended book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Quote, We deal with people that live in the moment and for the moment, Vaterot's training materials explain. Their decision, start, stay in school, or quit school, is based more on emotion than logic. Pain is the greater motivator in the short term. A recruiting team at ITT Technical Institute went so far as to drop an image of a dentist bearing down on a patient in agony with the words, find out where their pain is, end quote. When confronted with such a flagrant disregard of commonly accepted morality, the predatory capitalist will reply with a detached, our systems use only data. They cannot be held accountable for the moral shortcomings of others. Such a Machiavellian viewpoint is resultant of the currently accepted political and industrial behavioral political science model. We can simplify political science into three different archetypes. Traditionalist, behavioralist, and post-behavioralist. Traditionalist political science is the most cut and dry. Traditionalist political science states that if the law says the action is legal, it must be moral. Traditionalism represents the easiest to rebuke. There are plenty of amoral laws, and most individuals with a moral compass, at least somewhat egalitarian, can agree as much. For instance, Despite the increasing number of blatantly neo-fascist elements in the United States, it is accepted amongst most circles that at no point in American history was slavery a moral structure, regardless of whether it was legally permissible or not. 
Political science's second archetype, behavioralism, is a little more challenging to argue. Behavioralism believes that mathematical quantification and scientific analysis are the terminal deciding factor concerning moral and political decisions. Unfortunately, math and science are, contrary to popular belief, not exact sciences. Quite frankly, our current understanding of science gets more incorrect than it does correct, and models, as Mrs. O'Neill so poignantly states, quote, is opinion embedded in mathematics, end quote. Mathematics functions only receive and return numbers. What those numbers represent are abstract phenomenon, which it is up to the human mathematician to place their subjective reasoning. Once humans put their subjective charge to something, it ceases to be the objective and infallible arbiter that mathematicians believe it to be. Let us take... For example, the tragic 1995 case of Duane Buck, a black resident of Harris County, Texas, and currently awaiting the for unforgiving executioner on death row. During Duane Buck's initial trial, the Texan court system was arguing whether to give Buck life in prison with the chance of parole, or to exile him to the vacant void from which we all come and we all return. Buck's defense attorney called psychologist Walter Kijano to trial to offer his professional opinion on the matter. Kijano's opinion was as follows. The recidivism model expresses that mathematically, impoverished black men are more likely to return to prison upon release. The recidivism model fails to factor in the more abstract reasons behind the cyclical curse that faces men of my tribe. This cyclical curse I briefly touched upon in my last podcast the generational trauma inflicted upon us by years of slavery, the draconian policing methods we have been subjected to, and a country that already excludes us from upper mobility and further curses us to struggle against an uncaring and predatory capitalist machine are but a few of the reasons behind my tribe's tragic predilection towards the internment camps and the American gulags. None of those abstract and complex matters matter to the recidivism model. The recidivism model only cares that the numbers predict the more likely return to the prison system. Thus, Mr. Buck was sentenced to execution on the sole principle of his race and upbringing, which the Harris County court system eagerly agreed to. Dwayne Buck remains on death row to this day. Behavioralist political science has been a blight upon moral reasoning for centuries. Dr. Franz Fanon quoted Professor A. Perot's scientific analysis of the North African's behavior during the revolutionary periods of Algeria's struggle for independence from French despotism. At the 1935 French-speaking psychologist conference in Brussels, Pro goes on, on record to describe the revolutionary response as the fault of the, quote, the North African native whose cortex and reflexes are poorly developed is a primitive being whose essentially vegetative and instinctive life is primarily governed by his diencephalon, end quote. Furthermore, Pro lists in Annales Medical Psychologiques, 1918, the following taxonomical classifications of the African mind. Complete or almost complete lack of emotivity, highly credulous and suggestible, 
doggedly stubborn childlike mentality, minus the curiosity of the European child, prone to accidents and pithyatic reactions. Furthermore, the anachronistic discipline of phrenology, which was all the rage in Europe in the 20th century, unfortunately found a sudden resurgence on online message boards such as 4chan and 8chan during the 21st century. This discipline argues that bumps on the human skull can determine a race's propensity towards certain behaviors. I have experienced self-styled intellectuals during my youth in Memphis explain to me that the black brain has three bumps that give us a natural predisposition towards servitude. This apocrypha, in their opinion, explains the inability of the black race to uplift ourselves out of abject poverty and theoretically absolve the American South of all guilt with regards to their draconian practice of chattel slavery. Finally, we refer to Kropotkin's critique of the current taxonomical structure. His elucidation upon the obscurantist technical jargon surrounding the taxonomical separation of different human races in his biblical text, Mutual Aid. Hobbesian anthropologists seek to separate men into infantile and nauseatingly generalized subspecies, explaining away each subspecies of the human race as being beholden by some metaphysical set of laws that demand that each race behave within its given parameters. This bastardization of science not only upholds the anachronistic Hobbesian doctrine, of might makes right, but also belies a scientific method in which to justify treating different races by different standards. The behavioralist political theoretician thus can borrow any number of these anachronisms and use it to justify any number of predatory systems set in place to benefit the bourgeoisie in any number of ways they see fit, as presented in poor Mr. Buck's case. These examples are the problem with relying solely upon mathematical models and flawed scientific theories as an infallible moral shibboleth. Let us examine our final and most abstract political science archetype, post-behavioralist theory. Post-behavioralism believes that no matter how much math or scientific rigor you put a political decision through, human frailty will always corrupt it. Take, for example, the most heralded theory in conservative intelligentsia, trickle-down economics. The belief was that if the upper bourgeois were allowed to accrue their wealth and develop successful business ventures, then the proletariat would eventually be a party to their successes. The intellectuals on the right wing believe that every prosperous society is only as successful as its aristocracy. If the aristocracy is successful, the people will be successful. If the aristocracy struggles, the people will struggle. Recall our previous revelation that as the wealthy have increased their coffers, the impoverished have grown increasingly more impoverished. The data shows the fallacy of such thought in actual practice. On paper, trickle-down economics by all accounts was probably mathematical sound. 
However, math can never account for human frailty, no matter how hard it tries. With this in mind, we revisit the dilemma of social media and how it feeds on the emotional vulnerabilities of the current and coming generations. Unfortunately, with behavioralist political science still the norm, we find ourselves susceptible to the tragedy of surveillance capitalism in social media. There is a saying that if you are getting a product for free, then you are the product. This proverb is never more true than in the realm of social media. Social media allows anyone to create an account and develop their online circle. If one wishes to maintain contact with friends and family, they spend most of their time on Facebook. When one wishes to relegate their circles to a more specific philosophical dissertation, they turn to Reddit. If you want to share photos, you turn to Instagram, etc. For social media sites to make revenue, they rely on that ever-present mercantilist titan, advertisement. Gone are the halcyon days of the billboard on the side of the road, or the drive-in theater pre-movie advertisements. In the modern digital age, everyone's personalized social media accounts tailor to their specific desires. Venture capitalists may believe that they are simple mediators supplying the capitalist mantra of supply and demand by justifying that they are doing the public a favor by exposing them to items they value, but they couldn't be more self-deluded. To reach the 3.4 billion people connected on social media requires using the aforementioned labyrinthian machine gods created by the cabalistic computational ecclesiarchs. No team of scientists, no matter how brilliant, could hope to keep up with such a colossal demand. Thus, they add more parameters to their machine learning algorithms. What friends do they have? Which of those friends do they interact with the most? How long do they linger on specific photos? How often do they check their notification bar or refresh the homepage of their social media account? What are their political leanings? What buzzwords repeat in their tweets? And an almost interminable list of different parameters continues. The system takes these and continuously adds upon its lexicanum of data to further expand its efficacy. The result of this is a nigh-omnipotent superconsciousness that has no longer found itself content to monitor the decisions and behavioral quirks of its human capital. This veritable god machine acquires the ability to influence our everyday action on the micro level. To expose the user to advertisements they are most likely to click on, not even purchase, just click on, the algorithm mercilessly berates the user with seemingly superfluous data that the human mind processes on the subconscious level. The algorithm doesn't care about the moral or existential implications of its actions. It's simply in the business of making money, and in the era of the pandemic, where conventional business models fail left and right, the advertisement business is more than happy to offset the lost revenue with entirely new sources of human capital. Let's consider the following pattern. 
User A is surprisingly health conscious. User A, like self-help bloggers, follows athletes and discusses her health progress with friends over Instagram. The advertisements she will be exposed to will likely range from ketogenic powder to branch-chained amino acids. The user may not be interested at first, but eventually she finds herself browsing through the interminable ocean of ads until she finds something which suits her interests. Let's consider something a little more sinister. User B belongs to political party X and finds itself in direct antagonism towards political party Y. To ensure that user B is more likely to click on ads related to political party X, the algorithm will begin to mute benign posts about political party Y. Furthermore, it will quiet all benign posts which friends may have posted about political party Y and only begin displaying hostile news articles and posts supporting political party Y and attacking political party X. User B find, will find themselves increasingly more militant and entrenched within political party X and will actively search through advertisements related to political party X to find more users to validate their, view, their viewpoints. The societal and personal implications of such a tactic are of no concern to the god machine. The god machine only cares that you clicked on the ads that brought it in more revenue. I would be remiss if I didn't state that civil rights require a certain degree of militancy, to quote Dr. Fanon. Quote, Whatever gains the colonized make through armed or political struggle, they are not the result of the colonizer's goodwill or goodness of heart, but to the fact that he can no longer postpone such concessions. End quote. However, this militancy must be controlled, must be directed, and must be refined. The militancy which is the most profitable to the corporate machine is chaotic and uncontrolled spontaneity, which the Honorable Comrade Dr. Fanon warns is nothing but a negative feedback loop that will eventually implode in upon itself and consume everyone involved. Furthermore, wanton destruction to the environment is yet another way for insurance companies and the more mundane realm of venture capitalism to rake in more money. War sells. During World War II, America profited greatly from the apocalyptic annihilation of European infrastructure. During the war on drugs, we profited even more from the destruction of black households and the rape of South American nations. Riots when used effectively, shake the foundation of the bourgeoisie and bring attention to problems which have long needed to be addressed. Riots, when wanton and uncontrolled, bring nothing but insurance profit to the bourgeoisie. Consequently, what's stopping the god machine from using social media to organize individuals it knows are reactive as opposed to proactive into burning down their own neighborhoods during political unrest? I am by no means faulting those rioters for their actions. The muscular tension of a colonized nation can only receive so much abuse and punishment before it must release that tension through acts of militancy. That is a simple fact of colonized psychology. I am merely wishing to bring attention to the destructive nature of the god machine 
controlling when these riots happen and controlling how those riots line its pockets further. These declarations are not the blind ramblings of a conspiracy theorist. The software engineers and computer scientists who created most social media giants have recorded themselves to warn the ordinary population of the coming threats, as mentioned earlier. I am merely parroting the words of those wise seers, but using a little extra existential analogy to explain the philosophical implications of the god machine. Unfortunately, surveillance capitalism can also double as a powerful censorship device. Such warnings hurt profits. The god machine is the guardian of capitalist profits, so naturally the algorithm learns and extends itself to censorship as well. This scenario places us in an Orwellian dystopian nightmare, a veritable cyberpunk wasteland. No matter how strong-willed we think we are, we are all slaves to the god machine in some capacity. I will return to the concept of addiction. The algorithm demarcates social media users into several groups. For simplicity's sake, we will only use two categories the stars and the scrubs. The stars are constantly receiving praises, accolades, and attention on their social media accounts. The stars may not crave such attention from a neurotic standpoint, or they may, it's hard to say, but the attention still excites the dopamine receptors in the brain regardless. Thus, the social media algorithm ensures that it always alerts the star of new activity. Their email will alight with messages that X number of people have liked or commented on your most recent post. It will constantly suggest new, popular, and active friends for you to connect with. It will continuously bombard you with advertisements about prestigious universities, travel opportunities, or any number of ads. The star will find themselves obligated to share their accomplishments and adventures on their social media account. Why not? They have legions of adoring fans who are waiting to shower them with more accolades. The algorithm will ensure a constant influx of popularity to ensure the star is always coming back for more. The algorithms will begin advertising the very things the star has celebrated or visited. So anybody who has liked or commented on their posts now can not only live vicariously through their star's life, but also follow in their ebullient footsteps. On the flip side is the scrub. The scrub has very few followers and very little interaction on their social media account. This vulnerability is of no concern to the algorithm. The algorithm sees it as nothing more than another opportunity. Find what makes them hurt. Pain sells. The scrub frequently suffers from any number of auxiliary real-world mental disorders ranging from anxiety to depression. These disorders induce feelings of isolation and abandonment. In an ordinarily abnormal environment, individuals suffering from trauma neurosis would self-medicate to escape the pain. Weed, psilocybin, cocaine, opioids, whatever numbs the pain. Unfortunately, drugs aren't the only addiction. 
Frequently, those who find themselves struggling with poor feelings of self-worth will turn to love addiction. They are incapable of loving themselves, so they throw all of their emotional love towards their partner, which inevitably drives their partner away when their partner becomes uncomfortable with being deified. This scenario causes heartbreak and places the emotionally injured individual into a cyclical process of self-destruction. Addiction takes many forms, all destructive, all profitable. The algorithm targets the man who cannot seem to maintain a healthy relationship. The algorithm will constantly pair him with equally damaged individuals. The man finds himself in a long-distance relationship with one of these individuals. The relationship inevitably fails because of his repetitious proclivity towards deifying the lover in question. If there is a specific partner who hurt him the most, the algorithm will be sure not only to show this man his heartbreak, but everything his heartbreak is doing. Why? Because he's more likely to return to social media. He knows that he will never have a chance to return to their life. But the pain of watching the individual move on from him keeps him returning to the newsfeed. Does the algorithm care that the man may find himself standing on the proverbial precipice of oblivion? Does the god machine care that this mere mortal may choose to return to mother oblivion instead of bear the sight of his lost love continuing without him? Of course it doesn't. The god machine only wants the man to continue clicking until it drains his very essence and leaves him a debilitated husk of his former self. And what of the political dissident, thoroughly convinced that they need to take a stance against injustice? This political dissident, under any other circumstance, would be the prime candidate for a mentor to approach him with the proper civics and political training to turn him into a veritable revolutionary, railing against the draconian dogma of an equally draconian machine. However, the God Machine feeds this dissident a large volume of fatalism. After a healthy diet of fatalism, seemingly innocuous happenstand forces dissidents towards other dissidents who have equally isolated lives primed for antagonistic nihilism. These dissidents will constantly return to their social media account to rail against very valid problems but only within the confines of the God Machine's constant feed of advertisements. Does the God Machine care that these dissidents may carry out genuine acts of terrorism in, the cyberpunk in what cyberpunk aficionados refer to as meat space, as opposed to cyberspace? Of course it doesn't. Acts of terrorism are often equally profitable. What may have been a cabal of constructive revolutionaries now becomes a sacrificial victim to the God Machine's ever-expanding algorithm. It is hard to say what we can do to stop the inexorable advance of profiteering. Most state the best way is to delete all of your social media accounts and leave it at that. However, in the current digital age, we have grown reliant on said accounts to keep in touch with people and events. It's hard to tell if the total dismantling of social media is a feasible method. Then again, 
We can't expect the businesses themselves to take a stance. Our national economy is so entwined with private companies and big data that any deviation from profit will cause actual damage to our national economic structure. Consequently, governments and corporations will only do so much. The problems presented in this episode are mind-bogglingly complex. I had already left out an exorbitant volume of information to keep this episode restricted to a more feasible and digestible length. All I know for sure is that we face genuine problems in our daily routine. Our generation is reaching a culmination of gross inequity, which we must address. As these machine learning algorithms grow increasingly beyond our control or comprehension, so does any agenda of reaffirming our agency. I can only hope that we have addressed these issues soon, as the casualties of Tron Zone have already affected thousands of families. The rates of suicide in women as early as middle school had skyrocketed by upwards of 300% due to social media-induced depression. These statistics are unacceptable. Profit, generational nihilism, and political radicalization aside, we should not be losing our babies to an uncaring program that exists with the express intent towards making the wealthy even wealthier than they already are. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I had initially planned on doing two entirely additional sections on demagoguery via surveillance capitalism and a more mathematical analysis concerning the, devalu the devaluation of human life with the increasing focus on wealth accrual through human capital in its most abstract form. However, this podcast is already much longer than I initially anticipated. Consequently, just as with the Freedmen's Bureau of the last podcast, I will have to be content with maintaining this information as a possible future podcast. I want to thank my comrades in the Kansas City Legion of the TST and various absurdist philosophers on Reddit who provided me with much-needed input and feedback, such as including my list of inspirations and citations in the show notes. I genuinely appreciate the support that you all have shown me, and I can't explain how much it makes my heart swell knowing that I can provide listeners with enjoyable material. From the bottom of my blackened heart, <laughs> and my bruised heart if I'm being honest, I thank every one of you. As always, until next time, I am your humble host, and this has been Beyond the Veil. Ave, and hail yourselves.